Well, happy Easter, New Day. If you're new, my name is Mike. I have the privilege of serving as lead pastor here at our church, and I'm just so happy uh, that you've decided to spend this Easter with us, whether you're joining us in person or online uh, or out in the foyer, however you're joining us. Again, I'm just so glad that you're here. This year's Easter text is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 8. And in this particular passage, what we see is a healthy reminder concerning the gospel that saves. Now, though the Bible only contains one gospel, and though the Bible only proclaims one gospel, the sad and tragic reality is that false teachers have invented and purport any number of false gospels that do not save. Now, there's a number of different ones out there. Today, I'll just kind of give you my top three list. The first of which, if you're taking notes, is what we're going to call the works-based gospel. And proponents of this particular false gospel believe that salvation works as follows. If at the end of your life, when you die and you stand before God in judgment, if your good outweighs your bad, then you're good. This kind of reminds me of how when I was in elementary school, out on the playground, we had a seesaw. And as I recollect, the seesaw uh, was fun or not fun. And what determined whether it was fun or not, it was entirely determined by weight. If a 40-pound first grader paired up with a 100-pound fifth grader, you could see or you could saw, but you could not seesaw, Okay. So whether it was fun or not was entirely determined by weight. And the proponents of the works-based gospel think mistakenly that salvation works the same way. It's determined by weight. Do your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds after you die and stand before God in judgment? But friends, this cannot be a true gospel. And this gospel cannot have the power to save us from the penalty for sin because this gospel is completely contrary to the plain teaching of Scripture. Take a look with me at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 9, where the Apostle Paul says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Not, not, not by works, he says, through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. It's not something you earn, it's something God blesses you with as a gift. It's not the result of works, and the reason being is so that no one may boast about having earned their salvation. So number one, the works-based gospel, it's a false gospel, and it has no power to save. Second false gospel that I want to highlight today, we're going to call this one the prosperity gospel. And proponents of the prosperity gospel say that Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected from the grave, not so that we could be saved from the penalty for sin, rather so that we could enjoy a life filled with health and wealth and prosperity. And friends, sadly, this too is a false gospel. It sounds great. Proponents of this gospel say you can have health and you can have wealth if only you have enough faith. And sadly, that's their out. That's how they get out of 
explaining how there's countless millions of Christians around the world who are suffering or who live in poverty. They say, oh, they don't need to. If only they had more faith, which is not only heretical, it is also, as a side note, very cruel to people who are suffering through no fault of their own. But this too is a false gospel. And we know this because of John chapter 16, verse 33, where we see the very words of Jesus. He says, in this world, you will have what church? Say it out loud. You will have trouble. What Jesus's promise to his disciples are here on this side of eternity, you will have rejection. You will have opposition. You will have persecution. The glorious good news of the gospel is that, hey, in the life to come, everything's going to be peachy. Not so much here and now, because here and now we live in a sin cursed world. And sometimes people suffer through no fault of their own. Friends, the good news of the gospel is laid out quite well by Paul in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. He says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And friends, that is the good news of the gospel. We have violated God's law. The wages of sin is death. Yet because of Jesus's death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, we can be saved. We can be spared from such a fate. That's the good news. We can be saved from the penalty for sin. Third and final false gospel that I'll highlight today is what we're going to call the sinless gospel. And proponents of the sinless gospel claim that you can just live however you want, completely disregarding what God commands in scripture. And in the sinless gospel, this neither offends God nor prevents one from entering into the kingdom of heaven after death. But friends, it's a completely false gospel. Jesus says of those who believe in him and submit to his lordship that he will allow them to drink from the spring of the water of life. But as for the cowardly, he says, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So Jesus is not okay with sin. Scripture could not be more clear. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. True salvation always comes as the result of faith expressed in Jesus in a way that causes one to repent from sin. But as I said, in the sinless gospel, there's not even any mention of sin, never mind an emphasis on turning away from it. So what I'm trying to show you today is simply this. There are false gospels in the world. There was in the time of Christ. There are today. And we have to be careful that we don't get sucked into them or believe any part of them for this reason. False gospels do not save. But it's because of the proliferation of false gospels that God has given us the very text that we're studying this year for Easter. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. And it's very fitting that we're studying this particular passage on Easter because it's a resurrection-focused passage, and it focuses all its energy on the one true gospel, the only one that saves. So let me go ahead and read you the passage, and then I'll do my very best to explain it in a way that hopefully is helpful and simple to understand. Here we go. Picking up in verse one, the apostle Paul writes this to the Christians at the church in Corinth. 
He says, let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news, meaning the gospel I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. It is this good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. After his death, he was seen by Peter and then by the 12. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. Paul says, as if I had been born at the wrong time, because Paul saw him at a different period of time than the rest of the apostles. But friends, in these eight verses, we see three simple things that we're going to cover today. And here's a little outline of where we're going. Number one, we're going to see the preview. Number two, we're going to see the particulars. And then number three, we're going to see the peril. Let's begin. Again, if you're taking notes, the first thing we see in these eight verses is what we're going to call the preview. And we see this in verses one and two. Now, friends, I'm an avid reader. I absolutely love to read. I sometimes say in jest that uh, when someone asks me what I do, I say, well, I'm a professional reader, you know, that I got to explain. But there's some truth uh, in that saying. I, I do. I read for a living. I mean, and then I read when I'm not working. I just, I'm a reader. I love reading. And I'm more of an audiobook kind of guy, and so I'm constantly downloading audiobooks uh, from the book app on my smartphone. And I always do something before I decide to buy a book. I always go ahead and give a read to the publisher's description. And I love reading the, the description. It's a little preview of what's coming should I choose to go ahead and purchase the book. And then I find when I do go ahead and purchase the book, it helps me so much to have read the preview. Um, as I'm reading through the book, I go, oh, yeah, they talked about that. And then I know where I am in the book. And it's just so helpful. Well, friends, the Apostle Paul also knew the value of a preview. And so that's what he gives to us and to his original audience, the Christians at the church in Corinth in verses 1 to 2. Here's this preview. He's writing them a letter, and now he says this. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved. So Paul says, in the next part of my letter, I'm going to present to you a reminder. What's he reminding them of? Well, friends, the history you need to know is this. Paul, five years earlier, had visited Corinth on his second missionary journey. And when he arrived there, he began preaching the one true gospel. People got saved. Paul formed a Christian church. And Paul stayed around and ministered in the city of Corinth for 18 months before moving on to go continue planting churches elsewhere throughout the Roman Empire. But now five years time has gone by and Paul's aware of a group called the Judaizers who were going around spreading the false gospel that salvation came as the result of faith in Jesus plus adherence and observance of the Mosaic law. 
And Paul knows that this is spreading throughout the Roman Empire and infiltrating the Christian churches that he started. So five years after visiting Corinth, he writes him a letter and he says, guys, I need to give you uh, the most important reminder that you'll ever receive in your life. And I'm going to share with you the gospel that I preached to you five years ago. And friends, if they needed a reminder, though they knew the gospel, how many of you understand we sometimes need a reminder too? And that's exactly what God's going to give us this Easter. So number one, the preview. Now that he's given the preview in verses one and two, now in verses three to four, he gets into what we're going to call the particulars. Paul says, you know the core of the gospel. You know the very heart of the gospel. You know the foundation of the gospel because I spent 18 months teaching it to you. Nevertheless, it's time for a reminder. So Paul says, let me remind you of this. The gospel that saves proclaims this. It proclaims that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. It proclaims that he was buried after he died. And it proclaims that after he died and was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. So leave that verse up. Everyone take a look. There's three important words here. Died, buried, raised. And friends, this is the very heart of the gospel. And that being the case, we're going to go ahead and dive a little deeper into each of these three words. If you're still taking notes, we begin with the death of our Lord which is the first essential component of the one true gospel. The one true gospel is always going to proclaim the death of our Lord. Paul says in verse 3 that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. So he didn't just die, his death was foretold. That's what it means when it says he died in accordance with the scriptures. Paul's reminding his audience that the Old Testament prophets foretold that when Messiah came, he would die. For example, God spoke through the prophet Isaiah 700 years before Jesus was even born. And Isaiah let us know that when Messiah came, he would die. Isaiah says, when Messiah comes, he'll be like a lamb that has led to the slaughter. When Messiah comes, he's going to be cut off out of the land of the living. And Isaiah said that Messiah's mission wouldn't be complete until he had poured out his soul unto death. So friends, we shouldn't think for a minute that Christ's death was anything except exactly what God had foretold through his prophets. Critics of the Christian faith try to write off Jesus as a failure. They view him as a promising but disappointing figure whose crucifixion made him more of a martyr than of a Messiah, as if the cross marked the sudden collapse of a grand plan. Some have even suggested that Jesus unwisely miscalculated people's willingness to tolerate his teaching, and when he went too far, it ended up costing him his life. To them, Jesus' death was unexpected, unplanned, and the mark of his failure. But friends, nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus wasn't some well-meaning victim of a plan that surprisingly went horribly wrong. He knew exactly how his life would end down to the minutest detail. Jesus understood 
that the Old Testament scriptures foretold that he would die. And that's why we see him after he resurrected from the grave, rebuking his disciples as follows in Luke 24. Jesus says to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary? Meaning, was it not necessary for the, prophet, for the um, prophecies in order to be fulfilled? Namely, that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. Jesus was saying, nothing has happened to me except exactly what was supposed to happen to me according to God's plan, predetermined plan which has been revealed in scripture. And so we see that truly Christ died according to the scriptures. But friends, the Old Testament prophecies didn't just foretell that Messiah would die when he came. The prophecies also foretold the reason why he would die. As Isaiah put it in Isaiah 53 verse 5, he, Messiah, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his stripes we are healed. Messiah wouldn't die for any sins that he himself committed. No, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So friends, Jesus didn't die for any sins he committed. He died for sins you and I have committed. Now the Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' day did not believe that Jesus was dying for the sins of others. They believed Jesus was dying for sins he himself had committed. They believed that Jesus, being a mere man from their perspective, but claiming to be God, committed the sin of blasphemy, and that his crucifixion on the cross was God's just punishment for his sin of blasphemy. But friends, this is not what Scripture teaches. Scripture says we sinned, Jesus died. We deserve the penalty of death, but Jesus took the penalty upon himself. So that makes Jesus' death on the cross substitutionary in nature. And here's the best way I think I can explain that to you. My lovely daughter, Allie, about a year ago or so, got her uh, driver's permit. And she no, got, she no sooner got her permit uh, than she got into a minor accident, unfortunately. It's like permit this day, accident the next day. Now, if you have teenagers, you know that it costs about $10 million to have a teenager on your insurance policy. And if you've ever had the horrible incident of them getting into an accident, uh, especially early on, you know that the price just goes up from there. Now, there are times where my daughter makes a mistake, and I think for the good of her character development, she needs to go ahead and take care of whatever it is that she caused. However, this particular day, something Christian washed over me. And I said, honey, you got in the accident. And there's a big penalty for you having got into this accident. But I want you to know I'm your daddy. And I love you. And I'm going to pay the penalty for you. And friends, in a nutshell, that's exactly what God has done for us Sometimes I hate being a preacher because I think these kinds of things happen just so I have a way to explain the gospel to you. So you're welcome. <laughs> we sinned and we deserve to pay the penalty for sin, which is death. But because Jesus loved us, he willingly went to the cross to take the punishment for sin, which is death upon himself. He said, I love you. So I got this. I'm going to cover this for you. 
So we see that the first vital truth of the gospel that saves is this. Jesus died for our sins, and he did so in accordance with the scriptures. And friends, that's the first essential component of the gospel that saves. Here now is the second the gospel that saves, it doesn't just deal with the death of our Lord. Secondly, it also deals with the burial of our Lord. Now, this aspect of the gospel is probably the most overlooked, neglected, misunderstood aspect of the gospel. But friends, it is significant that Jesus was buried. Because Romans didn't bury criminals who were crucified on the cross, and that's what they viewed Jesus to be. When you committed the worst, the most heinous crimes in all of the land, crucifixion was reserved for you. And when someone was crucified, they would put the uh, cross up on a very well-traveled road, and then they would crucify that person so that everyone walking by could see. But then to add insult to injury, they would leave the body up on the cross after death so that the birds and the wild animals could pick away at the flesh of the victim. And this was a, a word picture. It was telling everyone who passed by, you don't defy the authority and the power and the might of Rome. And if you do, this is what's going to happen to you. Eventually, all the flesh would be picked off of that corpse. And then the Romans would take down the skull and the bones, and they didn't bury the body. That would have been to do something honorable to a criminal. No, they disposed of the body of crucified criminals. And in Jerusalem, south of the city, is the Valley of Hinnom, and that is the designated spot in the first century where the corpse of a crucified criminal was disposed of and not buried. But friends, the gospel that saves proclaims Jesus died, and additionally, he was buried. And this was foretold well before Jesus was ever born into the world. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9, we read this. God foretold through Isaiah, his prophet, that Jesus' body would be with a rich man in his death. And as we know, the rich man was Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph went to Pilate, the Roman governor. He boldly asked that he be given the body of Jesus. And with the help of Nicodemus, they lovingly together embalmed Jesus' body. And then his body was buried in, Nicod in uh, Joseph of Arimathea's own tomb. And this was God's doing ultimately, not Joseph of Arimathea's doing and not Nicodemus's doing. This was God the Father's doing ultimately. Here's the deal. Jesus was put to death in dishonor. I mean, Jesus stood before Pilate and Pilate said, this man has done nothing wrong. But the Jews still wanted to put him to death. So then Jesus was sent to Herod. Herod said, I find no fault in this man. Sent him back to Pilate. Pilate interrogates him again and says, this man has done nothing deserving of death. Couldn't find anything wrong with him. Nevertheless, he was put to death. And though God wasn't going to stop the crucifixion because Jesus needed to die for the sins of the world, the moment Jesus provided the salvation that would come through his death on the cross, God himself saw to it that Jesus' body would not be mistreated for one second longer. That's why his bones were not broken 
as was customarily done to a criminal on the cross. That's why his body wasn't left up for the birds to eat away at it and the wild animals to devour it. And that's why his body was not discarded into the valley of Hinnom. No, Jesus' body was buried. He died in dishonor, but God buried him in honor. And this was God the Father's way of declaring Jesus' innocence. Again, he didn't die for any sins he committed. He died for sins you and I have committed. And he took the punishment of death upon himself so that the punishment for sin, which is death, doesn't have to come upon us. So friends, the gospel that saves proclaims the death of our Lord. The gospel that saves proclaims the burial of our Lord. And now the third and final component of the gospel that saves the one true gospel uh, deals with, you won't be surprised to hear this Easter, the resurrection of our Lord. The resurrection of our Lord. Paul writes in verse 4, not only did Jesus die, not only was he buried, but additionally, he was raised on the third day, also in accordance with the scriptures. So his death was foretold, his burial was foretold, his resurrection was also foretold. I'm going to show you something from Isaiah 53. I find this beautiful. I hope you will too. And I think it becomes more and more beautiful when we remember that it was written 700 years before Jesus' birth. Let me walk you through verses 8, 9, and 10 of Isaiah 53 because Isaiah basically proclaims the gospel before Jesus even came. Friends, in verse 8, Jesus is dead. Let me show you. Isaiah, having a vision of the future, says of Jesus, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He was cut off out of the land of the living. So friends, in verse 8, Jesus is what? He is, he's dead. He's dead in verse 8. But now we move to verse 9. In verse 9, Jesus is buried. His body is not disposed of. In verse 9, Jesus is buried. We read this. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. So in verse 9, Jesus is buried. But friends, when we get to verse 10, we are thrilled to see that Jesus is risen from the grave. Isaiah says that after he makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. The people he sees are referred to here as his offspring because the people being referenced here are all those who are born again through faith in Jesus. So what we're seeing here is the risen Christ just reveling in what has been accomplished for mankind through his substitutionary and sacrificial death on the cross, the redemption of their soul, them being born again. So he shall see his offspring. After his death and his burial, he shall see his offspring. So verse 80 is dead, verse 90 is buried. But boy, let me tell you, verse 10, Jesus is risen from the grave. Now the question always comes up, how do we know that Jesus rose from the grave? How do we know that he was alive after his death? And it's as if the apostle Paul anticipated this very question. And so he gives an answer to it in verses five through eight. Take a look. Paul says, you want to know how we know that Jesus was alive after his death? It's simple. After he died and was buried, something we all saw, he appeared to Cephas. That's Peter's Aramaic name. Then he appeared to the 12, to all but Judas and Thomas. 
Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, Jesus' brother. Then to all the apostles, meaning that this time Thomas was present. Last of all, Paul says, he appeared also to me. So how do we know that Jesus rose from the dead? It's because of the reliable testimony of these witnesses to his resurrection. I would remind you today of this reality. Any single thing that you and I know from history comes from someone who wrote about it. And friends, there are tests that historians use to examine and weigh various evidences and various historical records to see which are reliable and which are not. And there may have never lived someone more qualified to determine which records of history are reliable than a man named Thomas Arnold, who was the chair of modern history at Oxford in England. And this guy, for a living, examined historical records, determining which ones were trustworthy and which ones were not. Well, let's look at what he wrote about the historical record of Jesus. I quote, The evidence for our Lord's life and death and resurrection may be and often has been shown to be satisfactory. It is good according to the common rules for distinguishing good evidence from bad. Thousands and tens of thousands of persons have gone through it piece by piece as carefully as every judge summing up a most important cause. I have myself done it many times over, not to persuade others, but to satisfy myself. I have been used for many years to study the histories of other times and to examine and weigh the evidence of those who have written about them. And I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better and fuller evidence than the great sign which God hath given to us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. End quote. Friends, in a court of law, eyewitness testimony always trumps circumstantial testimony, especially when there's two to three eyewitnesses. If there's two to three eyewitnesses, you go, the report is reliable. The report is credible. That's the, you can put someone to death on the testimony of two to three eyewitnesses. So you know what Paul here says? I got a slam dunk case. I got over 500 eyewitnesses. And then he does something really interesting. You know what he does next? He says, most of them are still alive, so go talk to them if you don't believe me. You know, I told a fib or two in my youth. I didn't ask people to go investigate the details of my lie. Paul says, you don't, you don't believe me. Go, go, go talk to the people who saw him. Can you imagine if you went and did that? You went and talked to some 500 people. You're just going to hear one story after another, after another. Maybe you hear the first two reports and you're still incredulous, but then another, and then another, and then another. And you go, wow, this person's not like some crazy coot, you know, like, I mean, like, whoa, this is, wow. And, and your faith starts to grow and you keep talking to a person after a person after a person. Friends, how do you think Christianity spread? I mean, when Jesus died, he had a handful of followers. Now Christianity has spread across the globe. I mean, Jesus' brothers didn't even believe in him during his life. 
His apostles were cowards before he died and resurrected from the grave. And then all of a sudden, everything changed. His family goes from thinking he's out of his mind to becoming believers. His apostles suddenly find their courage. Uh, the church takes off like wildfire and begins spreading around the Roman Empire and around the world. Friends, what could cause that other than the resurrection of Jesus? So friends, the third essential component of the gospel that saves is this. Jesus rose from the dead in accordance with the scriptures. Now, I love verse 11. I want you to take a look with me. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 11. Paul says this really interesting thing. He says, whether then it was I or they, so we preach. You know what he's saying there? Whether it's the apostle Peter who's preaching the gospel, whether it's James, the brother of Jesus, preaching the gospel, whether it's any of the other apostles besides Peter preaching the gospel, or whether it's me preaching the gospel, we all preach the same thing. There's only one true gospel, and it's the one that proclaims Jesus' death on the cross for our sins. It's the one that proclaims Jesus was buried as God's way of proving his innocence. And it was uh, the gospel that proclaims that Jesus rose from the dead after he was killed on that cross. So we preach. In other words, this is what we all preach. Now, many false gospels sprung up shortly after Christianity uh, was incepted, and many false gospels are still alive and well, unfortunately and tragically, throughout the world today. But friends, we want to get back to the very first gospel, the true gospel. You got to come right here. And it deals with Jesus' death and burial and resurrection from the grave. Point number three. First, we saw the preview. Number two, we looked at the particulars. And now, thirdly and finally, the last thing we see in the eight verses we're studying today is what we're going to call the peril. So the preview, the particulars, and now the peril. In the second part of verse two, we learn the peril of trusting in any other gospel than the one that proclaims Jesus' death and burial and resurrection. Paul says of the gospel that he preached, he, he says this in verse 2, by this gospel you are saved if, if means it's conditional. He says this is the gospel that will save you if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. The one that covered his death and burial and resurrection. He says, otherwise, in other words, if you depart from that gospel and you adopt some false one like the sinless gospel or some false one like the workspace gospel or some false one like the prosperity gospel, if you deviate from that, he says this, then you have believed in vain. What he's saying is we believe in the gospel in order to be saved from the penalty for sin, which is death. But should we choose to believe in a gospel that is actually no gospel at all, then we will not be saved. We will have believed, as Paul puts it, in vain. So friends, do you see how important it is to believe the one true gospel and not any false gospel? In the works-based gospel, you're not trusting the resurrected Christ to make atonement for your sins. In the works-based gospel, you're saying, Jesus, I don't need you. I got this. Look, 
how much my good weighs compared to my bad. Jesus, I can save myself. And Jesus has nothing for the self-righteous who would say, I got this, Jesus, I don't need you. In the prosperity gospel, you're not trusting in the resurrected Christ to save you from the penalty for sin. No, you're trusting in the resurrected Christ to make heaven something that happens here on earth. And friends, that won't save you either. And with the sinless gospel, you're not trusting in the resurrected Christ to pardon your sins because in the sinless gospel, there's not even any mention of sin. So friends, I would encourage you today, abandon the false gospel that does not save and exchange it for the one true gospel that does. I would implore you this Easter, trust Jesus to forgive you of your sins and know in your heart of hearts that he and he alone can pardon your sins and save you from the penalty for sin, which is death, because Jesus on the cross took that penalty for us. So when we say, God, please forgive me of my sins, I'm trusting Jesus to save me from your wrath against my sin come judgment day. God retroactively applies the punishment that Jesus received, and he counts it as the punishment given for your sins. So now God's sense of justice has been satisfied, yet you and I get to go free. Compliments of Jesus. Friends, believe Jesus to save you from the penalty for sin and believe in Jesus's burial and believe in Jesus's resurrection. Jesus rising from the dead means that Jesus has power over death. And when we believe by faith that Jesus rose from the dead, he promises to grant us eternal life. He promises that when we die, yet we will live. And we know that he has the power to do it because he himself rose from the dead first. And so the resurrection of Jesus provides us with the wonderful hope of life after death and the eternal kingdom of heaven. And God wants that for you. Maybe today you're here because someone gave you an invite to attend church. And that's awesome. I'm glad you came. Well, let me extend one more invite to you. Today, you are invited to believe on Jesus so he can save your soul and provide you with life after death. If you'd like that today, let me pray with you. Would you bow your heads? Would you close your eyes? Those of you online, everyone out in the foyer, everyone here in the auditorium, let's just go to God in prayer. You don't have to use my exact words or use my words at all, but if you'd like a little help, just say something along these lines to God in your heart. Say, Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus into the world. Thank you that he died on that cross to take the penalty for sin that I myself deserved. God, I reject the sinless gospel. I readily admit that I have fallen short of your standards laid out in the scriptures. And God, I know that the wages of sin is death, so I know this is something that I am deserving. So God, I'm not denying that I deserve death. God, I'm just praising you today and thanking you today that Jesus took this penalty for sin upon himself so that I could go free. God, I thank you for your invitation today. You offer me citizenship in the kingdom of heaven where I can live forever under the righteous rule of Christ. God, I accept your invitation. So I believe, God, that Jesus died for my sins. I believe he was buried and that that was your way of declaring his innocence 
Because God, I believe it. He didn't die for any sins he himself committed. He died for the sins I've committed. But God, I not only believe in his death, I not only believe in his burial, I also believe in his resurrection from the grave and that because of it, one day too, after I die, I shall also rise. You, by your power, will raise me just as you raised Christ. And God, I thank you for the hope of heaven that I now have. I thank you, God, for the peace that it brings. I thank you that today, because of the resurrected Christ Jesus, I have now made peace with you. I'm so thankful. I give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for experiencing this message with us. Do you want more New Day Church in your life? Well, please like and subscribe on YouTube and follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Want to take a next step in your faith? Our Church Center app is the best place to get more connected. So just download the free app on your app store today and be sure to choose New Day Church in Enfield, Connecticut. We are able to offer this sermon and all others like it only because of your faithful financial support. Thank you to all of you who so faithfully give each week. If you feel led to support our ministry financially, just go to our website at newdaychurch.cc forward slash give. Thank you in advance. May God richly bless you and we hope to see you again real soon.